Well, if you have your Bibles or if you have a phone that has a Bible on it, you can turn to the book of Exodus chapter 12. It's where we'll be this morning. Uh, If you haven't been with us, if you're new or visiting, we've been going through uh, the book of Exodus and all the plagues. We're just about done with the plagues. We're right before the 10th plague to fall upon Egypt. And here uh, the Lord pauses to give some instructions about how the Israelites are to approach that plague. Exodus chapter 12, we're just going to go through 28 verses this morning. In that chapter, we won't read them all at the beginning, but we'll read them as we work through our time together. Exodus chapter 12. As we begin, I'll just make the note that sometimes we as humans fear the wrong thing. For example, and maybe there's somebody in this room who shares this, there are many who have a fear of sharks. But shark attacks are relatively infrequent. Um, About 1 in 11 million are your odds of getting attacked by a shark. Even if you're an avid swimmer, you're more likely to be struck by lightning. Uh, Data collected in the U.S. between 2001 and 2013 showed that sharks killed about one person per year. There are about 30 to 60 shark attacks a year. So all told, they're not that deadly. Same with bears and alligators. According to that same data, about once a year. One person a year killed by a bear or alligator. For comparison's sake, maybe you're afraid of snakes and spiders. Snakes kill, on average, about six people per year, and spiders, seven. During that same period, it was found that cows, on average, killed about 20 people per year. So, we should be far more afraid of cows than spiders or sharks or bears. They are more deadly. Sometimes we don't have our fears in proportion. For example, you may be afraid of flying, but you're far more likely to die on the drive to the airport than in the crash of a plane. Sometimes we just fear the things we shouldn't. One of my example, or favorite examples, of course, of people fearing the wrong thing and then having that adjusted is uh, the disciples who are afraid of the storm on the boat. We talked this a few weeks ago at Easter. They're afraid of the storm swirling around them, and then Jesus stands up and calms the storm, and then who are they afraid of? They're afraid of Jesus, who's in the boat with them. They have their fears rearranged as they realize the one in the boat with them is far more powerful than the storm that rages around them. The same thing should be happening here with the Israelites in Egypt. All of this time, throughout these plagues, their greatest perceived threat was Pharaoh and Egypt. That was the power that was over them that they couldn't see beyond, that Uh, was dominating them. They were afraid of Pharaoh and how he might continue to rule over them. But this morning, it'll be clear that the greatest threat to the Israelites is not Pharaoh, is not Egypt, but is God himself. The greatest threat to the Israelites is a holy God who judges sin because they are sinners, and because of that, they stand under judgment. And when God sends the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn judgment upon the land of Egypt, this is the greatest threat to the Israelites, that they will be judged by a holy God. So the question will become, how will they avoid that? How are the Israelites to avoid judgment? How will God's people be passed over from the execution of his judgment? That's the main question, our main question for us this morning that kind of drives this whole passage. 
How will God's people be passed over from the execution of his judgment? How will they avoid the wrath of God? It's a far more pressing question than how will they get out of Egypt. The most pressing question here is how will they get out from under the wrath of a holy God who judges sinners? We'll find three answers to that question as we work through uh, these verses, 1 through 28 of chapter 12. And here we have the Bible's first description of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we're going to learn about these ancient rituals of the Israelites that God had ordained for them. And these feasts, these rituals, really answer the question of how do God's people avoid judgment? How will God's people be passed over from the execution of his judgment? First answer is found in verses 1 through 13. First, they will be passed over through a sacrifice of lamb's blood. Through a sacrifice of lamb's blood. That's what verses 1 through 13 are all about. And these describe the Passover itself. It is a sacrifice of a lamb that is at the center of the Passover. I'll read verses 1 through 6 first. And we'll see that the people of God avoid judgment through a sacrifice of lamb's blood. Verses 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So here God gives Moses instructions that he is to pass on to Israel for how they are to celebrate the Passover and avoid judgment. Moses is to give these instructions to the congregation of Israel. That's what it says in verse 3, the congregation. So you get the picture here that now Israel, and as a people, they're being formed as a religious body. Before they were a people under subjugation, under slavery. Now they're a congregation. They're a, a church. They're a religious people formed together, gathered together, And here's what Moses is to tell this congregation. Tell them about the Passover. Passover is just a noun that comes from the verb to pass over. And literally in the Hebrew that means something like to to leap or to skip or to jump or even to dance over. Um, The best translation for passing over might be leaping over. It's It's a skipping over, a Passover. And we first hear about the timing of the Passover. It's to take place in the first month of the year, according to their calendar. The Hebrew calendar, that would have been the month of Abib. Later, in Babylonian times, the Babylonian calendar would be known as the month of Nisan. It would occur in the springtime each year, either March or April. And the Passover would begin their year. They would start their year with a celebration. About a third of the way through the month, on the tenth day, they would select a lamb for sacrifice and then hold on to it, prepare it. And then on the fourteenth day, middle of the month, probably when the moon was full, they would sacrifice that lamb. Then the 
instructions give, stipulations for how the lamb was to be selected. It was to be about a year old or maybe just in its first year, so a young lamb, and it could be selected from sheep or goats. I'm not a farmer. I don't have experience with, I don't have an agricultural background, but from what I understand, what I read, that it's hard to dwell between sheep and goats at a young age. That in many cultures, they actually don't even make the differentiation between sheep and goats. They're just kind of the same animal, which speaks to a little bit. I find it interesting how the Lord is able to judge between sheep and goats in Matthew 25. He's able to discern. But here in this time, it didn't matter. They could take sheep, goat, either one, but a lamb, a young male. And that lamb was to be taken and it was to be consumed by the whole family. And if that lamb was too much for one household, it's okay. And grab your neighbor and the lamb will cover multiple households. In fact, I think there is a tradition developed in the Jewish community that you would have to have ten people over for a proper Passover meal. That, that would be quorum. So Jesus and his disciples met that, right, when they had their supper together. So that was a tradition that developed out of this stipulation that the lamb would be for the whole family and it had to all be consumed. And if your family couldn't do it, then invite the Catholic family with eight kids over and they'll, they'll help. More important than all that, the lamb was to be spotless. No faults. No broken bones. It was a lamb offered to God, and you wouldn't give God your second best. There is a holy and and righteous God, perfect in who he is and spotless in himself. So if you're going to offer something that will bridge your way to him, you don't offer him something that is with blemish, that is stained. What is offered before God must be without blemish. And of course we know, if we're Christians and we've read our Bibles as we're reading this, we're thinking about the unblemished, spotless lamb who will later be sacrificed. And in fact, this got me thinking about why was a lamb chosen in the first place for this Passover meal? Because I think God could have chosen a number of animals for this Passover meal. And maybe a bull would have been too much of an animal for all of the Israelites to sacrifice at one time and to consume fully. And maybe doves and pigeons were too small and maybe the lamb was just the right size. But I think, speculating, that God chose a lamb intentionally because he knew that his son Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb and he wanted an association in our minds of who that lamb was to come and this lamb and that a lamb being a gentle, humble animal. That when we think of God's son, we think of a lamb. All power, all rule and reign. And in Revelation 5, you see a lamb seated on the throne. And how powerful that image is, that the one who rules and reigns is gentle. And comes in humility and weakness. It sounds different if it was a bull sacrificed and we were worshiping the bull on the throne. Something about lamb speaks to us about the character of God and his son. This lamb is to be consumed by the family in verses 7 through 13. Give details on that. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. 
Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and in all the goods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So all the lambs are taken on the 14th night at twilight, and we think that means around sunset, early evening. All the lambs sacrificed at the same time. Now that it's springtime, maybe you've been getting out for more walks and walking around the neighborhood and this happens to me almost every time I walk around the neighborhood in an evening. I start smelling what other people are cooking. And you smell what's on the smoker and smell what's on the grill, and then you get envious and jealous of what they've got, right? Maybe you've had that experience. Well, imagine all of Goshen roasting lambs at the same time. I think it would be a good smell, but certainly there would be a smell. There would be quite literally, a a smell, an aroma of death. It was powerful in the air as they all roasted their lambs. And and I'll be honest, I'm not sure why they had to be roasted. I've looked into this, and and commentators are mixed. We don't know why the animal had to be roasted as opposed to boiled or eaten raw. It might be that there were some uh, pagan religions that had raw animal sacrifices, and they ate animal raw, and God was differentiating between those. It might be that boiling a lamb had to do with more um, modern techniques of cooking and when the heart behind boiling was preparing it a certain way and roasting was just a crude, this is how you kill it, this is how you um, cook it thoroughly and quickly, that might be behind it. But whatever the case, it had to be roasted and eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. We'll talk about unleavened bread more in a bit, but the bitter herbs probably were there as a symbol of the bitterness of the slavery they had endured in Egypt. Regardless, all of it had to be consumed. Nothing left behind. As you read through this text, you'll get the impression that this was a kind of a complete, a full-fledged uh, ritual. Nothing half-hearted about it. They were to leave nothing behind. They were to consume all of it. It would be a full, perfect, complete Sacrifice, not a partial sacrifice, a full sacrifice. So they're to fully consume it, I think indicating a full redemption and salvation out of Egypt. And then they're to be ready to leave and leave nothing behind. They're to eat the meal in a state of readiness with their robes tucked into their belts so they wouldn't trip over them with their sandals on inside the house staff in hand, ready to go. I've watched action movies and spy shows and all that, and from what I understand from the movies, that if you're a spy in a different country or if you're undercover somewhere, that you're always to have like a go bag ready for you, and that's the bag that has all the things you need and all your extra passports if you have multiple identities, like Jason Bourne, and has all the stuff that you need. If your cover's blown, you've got to get out of town quickly. You grab your go bag that has everything you need to survive for a while, right? I think that's what they're doing here. They've got their go bags ready. Their bags are packed. They're to be ready to go and to leave at a moment's notice. And that's the way they're to eat this meal forever. Reminding how they left Egypt. 
And the most important part of all of it is they were to put the lamb's blood on the doorpost, on the wooden beams, on the crossbeam, the lintel on the top. Blood was to be placed on the posts. Why blood? Well, we know biblically that blood is a reminder of both life and death. Life is in the blood, and when the blood is taken out of a thing, death happens. So blood, death, is what is used in atonement for sin. Why? Because that's what sin brings. When we sin against God who brings life, when we rebel against him, that brings death. When sin entered into the world, it brought death into the world, death of people. So blood is the cost of sin. Blood atones for sin because sin costs life. So blood is put on the posts. And as the blood was put on the posts, as God came through and struck down all the firstborns, and later the text will call God or the angel of death, so to speak, sent out from God, the destroyer. As the destroyer went through in the night, if there were blood on the doorpost, it would pass over that house. That house became, as it were, an ark. The ark that Noah and his family were in kept them safe and secure as judgment raged all around them. In the waters, well, here, as judgment rages all throughout Goshen and Egypt, the blood signified that this house was safe from the wrath of God. That wrath of God came upon all of Egypt, and it was even a judgment against the gods of Egypt. And we've talked about that as we've gone through the plagues. God was making warfare upon all the gods, showing them that they couldn't stop what he was doing, that they were ultimately powerless, and they were powerless to stop this judgment that comes across all. It's a decisive victory. The final blow this tenth plague will be. Now, I want to ask a somewhat obvious question. The question being, why did they need to do this? Why did the Israelites need to put blood on their doorposts? Besides the fact that God told them to. Why would they need to put blood on their doorposts to mark their houses off as the judgment of God passed through Egypt? Well, first, they needed to do this because they were guilty too. think through the other plagues that have happened, God had separated out Israel and not made them a part of it, right? He had spared them from the effects of the plagues various times. And they didn't do anything for that. God just did it on his own. This time, God has them participate, so to speak, in their salvation. They are to mark their doorposts lest they be killed. Why? Because they're just as much a sinful people as the Egyptians. It's been said that, you know, it took a moment for a few miracles to get Israel out of Egypt. It would take much more to get Egypt out of Israel. You're going to see throughout the rest of the Old Testament that they are a sinful people. They are no better than the people around them. They're no better than the Egyptians. God made a distinction, but it's not because Israel was better. It's just because he loved Israel. They are sinful people too. So if they didn't have the covering of the blood of the Lamb, they would be just as done as any Egyptian around them. 
Because they were all sinful. They all needed God to have grace upon them for the Lamb's blood to cover them. And I think God had them participate in this so that they would recognize this, so that they would realize that as they were painting their doorposts in blood, that that act would bring to mind for them, that act of faith would show them how close they were to judgment. And think about this, like God didn't need them to mark off their home so that he knew who was his and who wasn't, right? He's omniscient. He knows who's his and who isn't. And he's not Santa Claus who has a list and he's looking at his list and saying, are they not in your nice? I don't know. I better consult the list. I don't know on my own. No, God knows on his own who is his and who isn't. So the act of marking off the doorpost wasn't for God's benefit. It was for theirs. So they knew what they were being saved from. So they were participating, so to speak, in this act of faith, recognizing that God saved them by the blood of the Lamb. As they did it, they would be brought to mind how they were avoiding the wrath of God by the grace of God. So first, they they avoided God's wrath through a sacrifice of lamb's blood. And second, they would avoid the judgment of God through a festival of unleavened bread. Through a festival or a feast of unleavened bread. That's the second aspect of the ritual prescribed. In verses 14 through 20, this is all about the unleavened bread and the festival, the feast that goes along with it. Verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. So did you get that you're not supposed to eat unleavened bread during this feast? It began on the night of Passover. So on that night, that began the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, That began the Feast of Unleavened Bread, same as Passover, and then that would continue on for seven days, for a week, until the 21st day. And on the first and the seventh day, there would be a holy assembly. So you do church. On the first and seventh day, the people gather together, and they rest from their work. This is the thing I love about the feasts and the festivals of God. What are they around? Eating and resting. That's what they're about. Because God is a good God, and he gives life through his worship of him. These will be life-giving days. But there are some stipulations, and they're severe. You are not to eat any leavened bread. The reason given in the text is that the unleavened bread was a symbol of how they had to depart quickly from Egypt. So you didn't have time to prepare a bread that rises or take time to rise and all that. 
You prepare unleavened bread as a symbol. We had to prepare and eat quickly because God was delivering us quickly. That's one thing the unleavened bread represents. I think there might be a couple other things that the unleavened bread represents. This is a little bit more speculative, so go with me on it. But do you remember in the early in the pandemic where everybody was doing sourdough? I don't know how many of you are still doing sourdough, but that was a thing early on. For some reason, there was a big sourdough kick. And you'd have to ask my wife about this. I'm not a baker. She knows this better than I do. But I think with sourdough, you have to have the starter, right? That's, you know, and sometimes these starters go way back. And but for many years, people keep the starter around. But this is old starter kit and that, that yeast for sourdough bread. And you would take a clump of that and you put it in your new batch and your new dough. And then that's what would leaven this batch of bread. That was what would make it rise and make it sourdough. With leavened bread, you might have this kind of old batch mixed in with the new, and I think with unleavened bread, there's none of that. With unleavened bread, it is a new batch. It is a fresh start. You're not mixing any of the old with the new. I think it's maybe symbolic of a fresh, clean start. God is doing something different with his people. And and I think, biblically, we'll see that leaven kind of comes to symbolize corruption. Certainly, Paul gets there in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul talks about sin that spreads throughout the church, and he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So later on in Scripture, leaven will come to symbolize a representation of sin that spreads throughout the church. I don't necessarily want to read all of that back into this, but I do think there's something going on where God is preparing us to see unleavened bread the unleavened people as a pure, clean people who are getting a fresh start as they're delivered out of Egypt. They're not even allowed to have leaven in their homes. That's how serious God is about it. From what I read somewhere, I think there was another tradition that developed in Jewish homes where they would send their kids on a search throughout the house to see if they could find any leaven as a game. But there is to be no leaven in the home. If there was leaven or if they ate leavened bread, they'd be cut off. Excommunicated from the people and from the blessings of being part of Israel. Think about that. That's serious. Church disciplined because you ate bread. As I said in our first service, that would ruin so many of our potlucks and so many of our gatherings. Why is God so serious about such a small thing? Well, that small thing, that small disobedience, put small in quotation marks, is an indicator that somebody has rejected God. God had given them clear directions, a clear memorial for how his deliverance is to be remembered, that he saved his people, and he gave simple and clear directions on how this is to be carried out. And to not do this, and to thumb your nose at God directly and say, despite what you have said, despite what our whole community is doing, I'm going to go my own way because I don't care what God says or what his rule is. Well, that is worthy of judgment. It is a rebellion against God and his salvation. God takes his feasts seriously. These are two important festivals, two important rituals the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover focused on the blood and how God spared his people and passed over their sins through a substitutionary sacrifice. That was Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread focused on the bread and how God took them quickly out of Egypt and delivered them into a new land. You could say the Passover focused on atonement, while the Feast of Unleavened Bread focused on deliverance. 
blood, and bread. A ritual celebration for all time. That's what the next uh, number of verses are all about, verse 21 through 28. They kind of repeat some information, but it's emphasized that these rituals, these feasts, are to be celebrated forever, in perpetuity, a memorial for all generations. And that's the third way the Israelites will avoid the judgment of God. They will keep observing these things forever as an act of faith through perpetual praise and obedience. Through perpetual praise and obedience, they will stay in God's grace and avoid God's wrath. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So Moses, having been given instruction by God, now he goes to the elders, the heads of the household, and teaches them, instructs them, this is what we are to do. Largely, again, repeating what we've already heard, but it gives a few extra details, like the official tool of spreading blood, the hyssop. Um, we're not sure exactly what kind of plant this was, but it was some kind of shrub or, or bush, and the twigs of it, when you bound it together, made a really nice splattering paintbrush. So you'd have a, a basin of blood and... The hyssop that was used to keep it from coagulating and put it on the, the plant and you brush your doorposts and the crossbeam with blood. So there's the official tool for the Passover. But the focus of these verses is really how the ritual is to be performed in perpetuity as a statute forever. Notice God says in verse 25, when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, so this is already being prepared for after this initial Passover night. This is a statute forever. Not if you come into the land, but when. When the Lord delivers you, when the Lord saves you, when you are in the land, on and on, you are to do this. These are statutes for your children and children's children. Someday your kids will ask why you do this. You think about this ritual. This is a weird ritual. Everybody, we're going to kill a lamb at the same time. We're going to stay in our houses with our belts on and sandals and staff in hand and eat that way. And we're going to paint some blood on our doorpost. Like that, all of that's weird, right? It's abnormal. It's not something you do every day. And if any of you eat sourdough, you're out. Like all of that is abnormal. And the reason is it's a teaching moment every year. There's this opportunity where you do something out of the ordinary, this ritual, that will cause everybody to ask, why are you doing this? 
As you do this in your own home, your kids will ask, why are we doing this? Then I'll give you the opportunity to teach. We do this because our God is an awesome God who reigned a judgment upon Egypt and all their gods. He is the victor. He is supreme over all gods who executes judgment. But he's a holy and righteous God, so when he executes judgment, judgment might fall on us. Because we're sinners too, we do this because we remember that God in his mercy spared us, saved us, delivered us. Though we weren't worthy, he spared us and allowed us to live, not only to live, but to depart from slavery, to enter into his kingdom. We do this, this ritual, so that we can communicate the good news of God's salvation by the blood of the Lamb. That's why we do these things. That's why we do these rituals. That's why we do all of our rituals as Christians, so we can communicate these things. We do, you know made-up stuff like Christmas as a ritual to teach our kids about Jesus, or we do biblical rituals. I'm not saying Christmas is anti-biblical. I'm saying that this is founded in Scripture. We do other rituals, as we'll talk about, as an opportunity to teach and to remember what God has done. And as we do these things, and as Moses gave the good news to people, well, how did they respond? They bowed down in worship and they did what Moses said, they obeyed. Moses gave the good news of salvation, the people responded in praise and obedience. Think about the order there. What happens when? God's salvation comes first, and then they respond in praise and obedience. The good news is spoken, and because of that, then they worship. Notice what doesn't happen. God doesn't say, if you keep the feast of unleavened bread for seven days, then I will come and save you. No, God's salvation comes first, and then they celebrate for a week. Then they respond in obedience. That is how it works. We do not keep rituals... And obey God's word so that maybe he might come and save us. Rather, God saves us first and then we respond in obedience and praise. That obedience and that praise is fueled by his salvation, which comes first by his grace. That obedience and worship is the result of God's grace, not the cause of it. In other words, you don't have to praise and obey to get God to save you. You don't have to be good enough to be a Christian. You don't have to be cleaned up to believe. You start with belief. I believe God has saved me. And then he works on the praise and obedience the rest of your life. But it starts with his salvation and that good news. And he gives the ritual not as a way to achieve salvation, but as a way to express faith in the salvation that's already come. The ritual there is a way to celebrate the salvation God has given one of the things that strikes me about this Passover, this Feast of the Unleavened Bread, all of it, is how easy it is. Think about how simple this is. It's weird, but it's simple. Anybody can do it. God doesn't say, I'm going to come and strike everybody down at midnight, so before then, I want you to achieve enlightenment through spiritual practices. Or before then, you're going to have a test of your theology and need you to memorize all sorts of scripture and need you to get your theology straight and you're going to have an exam and then if you can pass that exam, then you'll be spared. Nor does God say, you have to do a whole bunch of spiritual works and beneficial acts and you have to go and feed the homeless and poor and then only then will I save you. No. All that God requires is a very simple, easy to do act of faith. Just show that you believe. 
That's it. And it's really easy. Kill a lamb, eat it, wait. I think it's actually, as I've been meditating on this, scandalously easy how, it is, how easy it is for them to avoid, sal- or avoid judgment and achieve salvation, to be saved. There were horrible Israelites who were saved on that night. Wicked people, just as guilty as the Egyptians. And all they did was kill an animal and put some blood on their door, and that was enough. Because that was faith. God does not require much of us for salvation. Just a simple act of faith and belief. And then, to continue that faith in perpetuity. If at any point they abandoned their faith and turned their back on God, stopped commemorating their faith through this act, then they would be cut off. Cut off because they had rejected God and rejected their faith in Him. It's a statute forever. So, it causes us to ask, how come we don't celebrate Passover? Over and over it says here, this is a statute forever. And yet, we don't celebrate Passover. Um, some Christians, I said this a little bit too harshly in the first service, so I'm going to try and say it more gently now. I think some Christians have been doing Seder meals and stuff because they're a little bit bored. That's been a trend recently. We're going to do Seder meals. We've done it here at church before. I think because it sounds kind of fun and ancient, why not go back a few thousand years to the original people, right? And we'll just we'll, we'll dress up our worship a little bit and do something unique. I say this gently, kind of tongue-in-cheek. But we're not commanded to do that. In fact, Christians throughout history have not done that. We don't celebrate the Passover. Why? I think two reasons I'll give you. One, we have a perpetual Passover in Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled the Passover. In him, we avoid God's judgment. So when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he's, in John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First Peter 1.19, which we read earlier, says we were bought with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Both John and Peter are looking at Jesus saying, He is our Passover lamb. He is the spotless one who was sacrificed in our place. When his blood was spilt on the wooden beams, our sins were covered. We were spared from the wrath and judgment of God. So we live, if we are in Christ... We exist in a perpetual, ongoing Passover. There's no need for us to celebrate it because it is constantly existing. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So there Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb, saying he has been sacrificed, and once for all time he has been sacrificed. And then Paul spiritualizes the Feast of Unleavened Bread and talks about how we should live, but he doesn't command us to practice it ongoing. He says we live in the Passover as a people of unleavened bread. We have our Passover in Christ, and not just 
uh, a lamb for each household, not many lambs, we have one lamb, one sacrifice that was sufficient for all time. They had to do this year after year, enough lambs for the whole village, for all of Israel. How many thousands of lambs have been sacrificed? But now there is one sufficient sacrifice for all who is our Passover lamb, who covers us, and in him we avoid judgment. Then, So we don't no longer have to celebrate Passover because Christ is our Passover, but then we also have been given a new meal, a new ritual to commemorate our faith. And Jesus initiates or institutes this ritual on the Passover, and that is intentional. He doesn't do it on the Day of Atonement. He does it on the Passover. He eats his last meal with his disciples. Matthew talks about this last meal in the preparation for it. Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Then at the Passover meal, Luke 22:19 through 20 says this, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is our Passover lamb, our Messiah, and he has given us a new meal to eat that he instituted on that Passover to signify a new covenant. We don't sacrifice and eat a lamb because our lamb has already been sacrificed and he is sufficient. We remember his sacrifice through bread representing his body, through a cup representing his blood. And we've eaten it forever as Christians as a remembrance of what he's done. And we do it week in and week out because whenever Christians gathered throughout history, they took this communion meal together as a remembrance of how Christ, their Passover lamb, has spared them from judgment. Is the only reason we are not judged by God. Because of Jesus, the lamb. So we asked, how will God's people be passed over from the execution of his judgment? How will we avoid the wrath of God? And this is our hope. We will be passed over from God's judgment in Christ alone, our Passover lamb. We celebrate his Passover and demonstrate our faith in him in the communion we take. Statute for all time, remembering his broken body and shed blood. That's what we're going to do now. That's what we do every week, remembering the salvation we have in him. I'll invite musicians to come forward. They're going to prepare for us. Uh, they're going to play for us a song. And while they play a song, we will grab a cup with bread and with juice in it. There are several tables around the room. Before we do that, just to prepare our hearts, I want to recite a prayer that we know, the Lord's Prayer. One of the things that strikes me about the Lord's Prayer is how simple it is. Just like the Passover meal, just like communion itself, these are acts of faith that are simple. God makes it easy, in a sense, to find salvation in him and to walk in the faith. There's even evidence that the Lord's Prayer was kind of a standard liturgical prayer that was known. So when the disciples asked, how should we pray, Jesus didn't give them a brand new thing they'd never heard before. He just said, here's how you do it very simply. You guys know. It's a simple prayer, a simple meal, representing an awesome truth that we have been miraculously spared from judgment. 
And God has done all the work. We just respond in faith. So I'll ask you to respond with me by reading the Lord's Prayer, and we'll take communion. If you are a Christian, if you believe these things, and if this prayer represents your own heart and mind, then you're invited to take some of the cup and then hold on to it, the bread and the cup, until we take together after the song plays. But first, let's read this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.